Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. With us on the podcast today is Bernie Roth. He is a uh, professor of engineering at Stanford. He's the director of the D School, which is the design school at Stanford University. He's a leading expert in kinematics, the science of motion, and one of the world's pioneers in the area of robotics. He's written a, a book that I absolutely adored, the, Chi- the Achievement Habit, Stop Wishing, Start Doing, and Take Command of Your Life. It's not a book that I would normally expect a professor of engineering to write, and yet it is so clearly the outcome of thoughtfulness of design and the clarity of thinking and the discipline of thinking that brings you to say, what is it that I'm trying to achieve and how do I break this down and be thoughtful about uh, in the very many facets of my life, uh, breaking it down and moving forward step by step to achieve what it is that I want. It was really a terrific book. I highly recommend that you buy it. Uh, the podcast, I'm sure, will be great, but the reading of the book is is. Uh, was really great for me. It was introduced to me by my friend Howie Jacobson, who's also been on this podcast. Bernie, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, and thank you for that nice introduction. It was easy. (laughs) Um, Bernie, I'm curious to start with what need that you saw that led you to both design the course. The book is based on a course that you teach. So to design the course and write the book. Sure. Well, uh, the the design of the course came from uh, my experience as a young professor coming from the New York out to San Francisco and to the Bay Area and to Stanford. And uh, I noticed that, uh, well, first I can say in those days, Silicon Valley is not, was not the Silicon Valley we know today. And what was happening then was a lot of my students would say, well, I'm going to start a business after I graduate. And uh, none of them did, actually. They mainly went and worked for large companies like Hewlett Packard, uh, companies that don't exist anymore, Raychem. uh, uh, And they... um, they would always have this pipe dream, and it really reminded me of that uh, O'Neill play, The Iceman Cometh, where people in the bar all play long, and they're going to go out and cross the street, and nobody ever leaves the bar. And I just felt, I, I didn't really care if they started businesses or not, I just felt that they had this pipe dream that they should either go on and have other pipe dreams or they should fulfill it. So uh, I decided to make a course where uh, one of the things was you have to do something you've always wanted to do in your life and never done before. And uh, that was a project and you select it. Uh, The other thing I noticed is people came to me with problems that I really didn't think belonged in an engineering school uh, and that, you know, they were kind of personal issues that would probably be taken care of at home. And I was surprised they hadn't learned how to handle that stuff. And they were stuck with these sort of lifelong issues that they 
needed to get rid of. And I had some experiences here that led me to feel I could help them with that kind of stuff. So the course was made up. Uh, you had to uh, do, do something of your choice that would get rid of a problem in your life or do something you've always wanted to do and not done. And as people were doing that over the years, I noticed it was a terrific idea in that it was this uh, empowered them. Once you realize you can do this stuff once, you can do it again, again, and again, and again. And and the world changed around us and people started starting living a lot of their pipe dreams. So that's sort of how the course started. Also, there was an influence of wanting to bring more human centeredness into uh into my teaching, which uh, I had some experience at Esalen uh, down here, which awakened me to the idea that people are what what it's all about, not machines. And uh, so th those all came together and I, I did the book and uh, I did the course. And then the book is just one of these things. I wanted to go on sabbatical and my wife said, look, we've gone on too many sabbaticals. I'm not going again. I want to stay in my studio and work. You can go. Uh, it, but uh, you can go and come back, but I'm not going. So I figured, well, I'm not going to do that. And uh, I'm, but I don't want to waste a year just sitting around doing what I always do when I'm not on sabbatical. So I figured, well, it's about time I wrote this stuff up, and uh, that led to the book. So it's thanks to my wife. <laughs> I love it. So so this huge achievement that you had was based in yeah. in this sort of desire to go. Ah, I don't want to waste the year. I might as well write a book. Whatever. Yeah. And there was a lot of there was a lot into it. Actually, I didn't know I was going to write this book. I actually had three books in mind, and I spent about six months talking to everyone I know. I have a lot of friends who write books and getting their advice. And at the end, there was no resolution. So uh, I invoked one of the principles that we have in the D school. It's called bias towards action. And I made up on September first when my uh, sabbatical starts. Even if I don't know what I'm going to write, I'm going to. Get, get up early in the morning, 6 a.m., I'm going to put my butt in front of my uh, desktop computer and I'm going to start writing. And literally that's what happened. I had no real resolution. I sat down and I started typing and uh, I this book came out of me, came pouring out of me. So uh, it was kind of a really interesting experience. It's a Whereas great mirror. It's a great mirror it, to what you talk about in the book. It is. I mean, literally I could still be Three years, four years late, I could still be thinking about what book to write Right. <laughs> if right. I had waited to get that information. And it's one of the principles in the book. It's also one of the very clear principles of leadership that, that you know, there's a lot of research and my own experience in working with a lot of leaders that points oh. to the fact that bias towards action is, yeah. is one of the key competencies of the most effective leaders. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it worked in this case. <laughs> and we, we actually have a lot of examples at the D school where, where it sort of produces miracles. And uh, if you didn't, didn't do that, it would be you, you would never realize the magic. Well, you yeah. get data from it. I mean, the, you, you could think about things again and again and again, and you're not getting yeah. any real new data, even I, though that's what you're looking for. But when you take action, you have data. Absolutely. Totally. Totally my experience. Right. You you. um. You write uh, at, towards the end of the book, I think it's the, the first line of chapter 10, I take the view that life is basically a problem-solving activity and you can learn to make both the process and the results better. It, it felt to me as I was reading it that that sort of summed up a little bit the, the point of this book. Is that right? 
I agree with you totally. Yeah, it is. It is, it is that way. Uh, I see a big parallel between what we call life and between my professional work, which is sort of not life. It's not, you know, it's it, people think of home and work. And in my case, I, I think they're all the same, really. And uh, we, we shouldn't compartmentalize it. And if we use the same processes, uh, they work very well. So I came to it first by uh, not knowing life was a problem-solving activity and just thinking life was life and I got involved in designing machines, robots and things of that nature. And uh, the more I did that stuff, I realized it was a parallel in my real life to my professional life. And at some point I got the point, it's really the same thing. And uh, that was a big breakthrough in my thinking. So I, I, I found myself, as I was reading the first few chapters, very intrigued, and this almost never happens to me, very intrigued to go to your acknowledgments, because I wanted to understand better the influences that led you to you know, really think about this very human-based approach to action. And I've taught at Esalen, and I, and I understand Esalen, and I, and I you know, understand a little bit of Est, though I never did Est. And both of those showed up and it made a lot of sense to me. And I wonder if you could just spend a minute sharing a little bit about the connection between, you know, your personal transformation, I guess, uh, that, that, you know, Esalen and Est, it sounds like those were the two sort of yeah. big influences, how they, how they brought you from where you were to where you are. Sure. I'd be pleased to. Yeah, that's true. And the acknowledgement is actually the true story. It's uh as far as I know, the whole book is the true story. But, you know, I was very careful to to recount how I got there and the people I, I owe a lot to. So what happened in my case, I grew up in New York and I went through an engineering school. I went to City College of New York and Columbia University and I accumulated three degrees in mechanical engineering. And after my Ph.D., I went out to work at Stanford and uh, I had a very straight uh, engineering background, and uh, I was sort of, uh, when I came to California, it was a little bit of culture shock. People didn't wear jackets. Uh, people called each other by first names, all that kind of stuff. And uh, eventually, uh, a colleague of mine had a connection with Mike, Mike Murphy, who was one of the founders of Esalen. Uh, and uh, he arranged, my colleague arranged for a weekend of Stanford professors to go down to Esalen. And he didn't invite me because I was too straight. But <laughs> somehow at the last minute, someone dropped out and reluctantly he included me. And uh, when I went down there, it was a weekend, a sort of sampler weekend. Fritz Perls, Bill Schutz, people like that did, did their sticks. And uh, it was very eye opening to me. And I started to understand how that really relates to my work, as I said before. So that was the beginning. And then the same friend, Bob McKim is his name, my colleague. Uh, he was sort of the guru. He was into all this weird stuff and uh, um, California things. He grew up in California, so he was way ahead of me. And so he introduced me to Aston to Werner Earhart. And uh, we became good friends, uh, Werner and I, and I actually did some co-leading workshops with Werner and uh, got to understand it. So for me, I would say Aston was sort of the opening up of the experience and uh then S, uh, S sort of made an intellectual framework around it. Uh, so that's kind of what happened to me. And in between, what has happened is uh, my friend Bob 
decided we should have a uh, Esalen at Stanford program. So they arranged to bring up these speakers from Esalen for the weekend. And uh, for $40, you could do a weekend workshop at Stanford with one of the Esalen gurus. And uh, another friend of mine, Doug Wild, he and I decided we should put a course in the dorms based on these Esalen classes. And the students had to go to one of these weekends during the 10-week quarter. I went to every one of them because I was the teacher. So uh, that was an, another part of my training and getting used to these things. So it was a very intense part of my life. And uh, we offered that course for about uh, eight years, three times a year. It was very popular in the dorms. So that's how I got to get a good background in leading these kind of workshops. And, you know, when, when you're leading the workshops and in teaching your class, it, it seems like you are willing to really be a little bit out there. You know, you're, you're, you know one of your exercises you open up the book with is uh, holding a water bottle and trying to get a student to get it out of your hands. Or you have you later in the book, you talk about people, you know, moving around and moving their bodies. And, and, I, and I wonder, you know, personally for you, both as you're putting into practice these goals of the achievement habit, remember the achievement habit is all about crossing the boundary between what you want to do and actually doing it. Right, which is and this is a space that I spend a lot of my time in, also from a leadership perspective. So, but you're you're, you're doing a lot of weird stuff, and my question is, you know, you're you're clear on the purpose of it. Yes. I'm curious emotionally whether you feel fear when you're doing it, whether you're super grounded in it and you know this works and this is why you're doing it, whether you're a little hesitant about how it's going to be received yeah. by people. I'm curious about your personal experience in closing sure. that gap. Yeah, well, uh, it, it's hard to remember to how I felt back in the beginning. Uh, I, I don't feel any fear or concern uh, at this point in my life. I've done so much of it. Uh, I do remember one part early on, the, um, the dean of engineering was somehow concerned that I was going to harm people. So he sent me to the psychological uh, service center at, uh, at Stanford to talk to two professional psychiatrists to make sure I'm, you know, I'm not mucking around with things that I shouldn't be doing. So was and, he, was that, let me just be clear. Was he wanting you to get advice from them for your students get, or was he wanting to check you out? He wanted them to check out and say, it's okay for me to do that before he shut me down. But he but, wasn't, but he wasn't trying to check you out. He wasn't saying maybe Bernie's lost his rocker. Let me quietly get these people to assess him. No, it's just maybe Bernie shouldn't be doing this because he's not qualified since he never took a psychology course. <laughs> and uh, so I went, and the interesting story is one of the guys uh, became so enthralled, he he decided to co-teach co a class with me. And uh, uh, But what they taught me is, I, I always remember, he said, don't worry about it, Bernie, people are not made of Dresden, China which I love that expression. And this fear of, uh, you know, it's it's okay if people cry. It's okay if people get emotional. In fact, it's kind of useful. Uh, so uh, I, I don't, you know, the, I'd say the only place I'm hesitant is I do a lot of stuff for professional groups. And, and uh, in that case, it's like if they're calling me in to talk about creativity, uh, what license do I have to uh, muck with their psyche? And, and uh, so I, I try and um, I try and frame it in a way that's is what they bought into, 
But then I go beyond where they would normally go with that. And, you know, I make it that you don't have to. You you can opt out. I don't force anyone to do anything. But there's a certain amount of social pressure in a group to do things. But uh, in general, I'm concerned about not pushing people beyond where they want to go. And I make it uh, I I don't embarrass people and I make it open. And, uh, you know, some people are resistant in the beginning and. those are the people I'm most worried about in the strangest way, because what happens is if it's in a class and I get someone from the graduate school of business who's too totally analytical and all that and very resistant the first day or two. I think, oh, this guy's going to be trouble because he's going to be such a groupie at the end. It's going to be an embarrassment. And that's what happens. I mean, the people who are really resistant tend to flip totally to the point where uh, you're the voice of God. You know, it's embarrassing. So uh, in general, I I can say I'm un- not aware of any harm I've ever done, and I've certainly been told by a lot of people it's done a lot of good. So I don't feel any real uh, concern that way. It's more appropriateness in the setting uh, and how I frame it. But basically, it's the same thing, but I may spoon it out in different different ways. So what I want to do now is throw out a couple of statements that you make, m- mostly chapter titles, and I, I want you to to speak about them a little bit. And, and, and later in the book, you sort of talk about building creative confidence in, in the design students, that bringing people through a series of experiences to change their self-image is what you write. What I would love to do is, you know, I'm going to start with the first one, which is reasons are bullshit. Sure, and, yeah. and I would, and I'd love for you to, you know, you could share a story, you could share some advice, some help people, you know, over the next few minutes of the podcast, help people uh, uh, kind of bring them through a, some experience a little bit or some story that helps them to see things in a different light than sure. than we would. And before you do, I just want to remind people that we are speaking with Bernie Roth. His book is The Achievement Habit, Stop Wishing, Start Doing, and Take Command of Your Life. So, Bernie, yeah. reasons are bullshit. Yeah. So where that comes from is the, the, the my realization that reasons are really not useful in life uh, in general and that they get in the way of ever changing your behavior or changing uh changing uh, changing period because they're basically generally excuses and uh that i can i'll tell you the insight the insight came from i was on the board of directors of a company in berkeley and i would invariably come late to the board meeting and i would invariably invoke the reason was that there was a lot of traffic on the highway going up between uh, stanford and berkeley and um it was all true I was late and there was traffic. However, that was not the real reason I was there. I was late. And when I thought about it, I realized, of course, uh, there were lots of reasons, including my taking a few. In those days, there weren't. Uh, I had a, I had a teletype in my office. So doing the the origins of email, I was doing teletyping and I had to send a few more messages before I left. And in those days there were no cell phones, there were desk phones. So of course I had to be at my desk to use the phone to call some, make some very important calls before I left. And then when I left the office, of course I met someone at the elevator and we had to have a little important chat about something. And by the time I got to my car, if there was no traffic at Stanford and no traffic at Berkeley and no traffic on the highway, I would have made it. But of course there was, so I never made it on time. I am unfortunately so I did, I did, all too familiar with that dance. 
Yeah, yeah. So and you know, so I realized at some point that I was really being abusive to these other people on the board, and they were kind of nice about it. But I realized that my behavior was wrong, and uh, I realized I should either get off the board or I should give it enough valence in my life to get there on time, which is wasn't rocket science. You just had to leave earlier, and once I did that. It was, first of all, it was great. I didn't have to worry about death-defying, cutting people off on the highway and getting angry if someone was in front of me moving slowly and I could just go like a relaxed person up the highway. And if I got there a little early, it was a pleasure. I could talk to these people and, you know, have schmooze around a little bit. And if not, if there was a lot of traffic, I'd still be on time. So that kind of was a big insight and uh, from that I, got, I changed my behavior from someone who was always late to someone who was always on time I'm now the pain in the ass who starts everything on time so uh, that was a big change and from that I went to realizing that all these things we say about human behavior we don't really know it there's no one reason for any human behavior it's very complicated you know if you weren't born you wouldn't do any of the things you do so if someone says why did you do it you could say because you were born well that sounds wise you know it's, it's not an appropriate answer but in fact uh, there are many many reasons for everything you do so to say the reason for something is a lie basically and what you do is you pick out the reason that makes you look good or makes you feel good or you know it's a kind of uh, i have some friends i grew up with in the bronx who are badasses so they'll give you a reason where they're really bad whatever it is you know whatever your self-image is you'll get a reason to to support that and it's okay except you'll never change your behavior if you rely on these reasons for it so that's kind of where it all came from and then i experimented with it and i see that like a simple thing happens in my life i get maybe three emails a week from someone in the world. Nowadays, it's Iran or China, India, uh, who wants to come and do a PhD with me at Stanford. And uh, I don't have to answer them, but generally is they, they've put a lot of work into it and uh, they've researched me. And so I don't want to be just ignore them. So I used to say, I'm sorry, I can't take you because I don't have any money. Or I'm sorry, I can't take you because I'm going on sabbatical. And any time I gave them a reason, they'd push back. If, it's, if, if I don't have any money, they have a rich uncle. If I'm going on sabbatical, they could come a year later. They don't have to come. There. And it would go on and on until I just truncated out of just the weariness. Nowadays, though, I have my insight. I don't give them a reason. I just say what I'm going to do or not do, which is I'm sorry, I can't help you. Good luck. And what happens is about 85% of the time, I get back an email saying, thank you very much, Professor, for answering my email. And that's the end of the discussion. And I feel good about it, and I, they seem to feel, be okay with it also. So I've, I've taken this thing, and in, in my administrative work in the D school, it's totally that way. I don't give people reasons for what I do. I just say what it is. So uh, we had an example where we were going to someone who was um, – been with us for a while teaching classes things didn't work out in her teaching and we were going to tell her we didn't want her to teach the next quarter and someone wrote a sample letter and it was like three pages of you know apologies and i said no no let me handle it and i just said you know i'm sorry we're not going to use you again we love you stay in touch very and i this person is in my life for a year and a half now every time i see her she hugs me and friendly and if we had given the reasons it would have just turned to muck and i just it's it's really interesting to try it and and furthermore i'll say one other thing there are a lot of experiments where they put people in mri machines and they ask them to do a task 
and they ask them to explain why they did the task. And it turns out they look at the parts of the brain that fire and the ones that make up your mind to do the task fire before the ones that make up the reasons. So we do what we do. We are habitual. Most of the things are just habitual. It's what they call thinking fast. And we just do it. And then if you say, why would you do it? Well, I have to think up some nice thing and I will do that. So don't use reasons. You'll never change your behavior. And if you do, if you do that, I find if I give someone a reason and it's bullshit, I, I say to myself, I'll never do that again. Uh, and then, of course, I'll do it again. But if eventually I change, if I just give them a reason and don't tell myself it's bullshit, I will never change because I'll use that reason uh, to protect my, my behavior, even though I don't want to have it. So, so two, that's two questions that's about the reasons. Yeah. One is, I would imagine as a problem solver, there's some yeah. element of reasons that are useful to say, you know, maybe there was a reason that you were late is that you're trying to get too much done before you leave and understanding that that was the reason, then you can solve for it. Do you, yeah. do you believe in that or do you think that's bullshit too? I, I, not, I, well, when you say the reason, I, I'd say it's bullshit. If you'd say it's a reason, it's a factor. There's a lot of factors. So it, yeah, one factor may be very strong and you, it may be the thing that you want to give you an insight. I have no problem that way. I just realize it's not the reason to do that. You know, it's, for example, you asked me to do this podcast, right? So I could say, if you say, why do you do it? I say, well, Peter asked me, okay? But that's not why I'm doing it, because you could ask me, I could have said, no, I'm sure some people don't accept your invitations. Uh, so what is it about? Well, it's, there's a whole history of me and podcasts and maybe the way you approach me or maybe the fact that you live somewhere that I like. I don't know. You know, it's so complicated. It, it really is. But it doesn't matter most of the time. Who cares? You know, you, give me a, you ask me a question, I give you a reason. But the point simply is uh, it can be destructive and prevent you from changing. And that's the point. And what I always tell people to do is don't use reasons. Just say what you do and don't do and your life will be much better you really don't need them and if you need them don't be a jerk give someone a reason if you know you don't want to offend them but for yourself tell yourself it's not the truth so i think you just answered my second question too which is that there's a bunch of research that says that it that people um, people are more willing to comply when there's a reason. If you're going to cut someone in line, if you just say I'm sure. cutting in line, they're going to say no. If you go, I'm cutting in line, even if the sure. reason is bullshit, they're sort of it more is. willing to say, yeah, okay. It is, it is bullshit. Of course it's bullshit. And yeah, and you use it. Uh, people use these things to justify behavior that they uh, isn't exactly what they want. So they give you a reason. And they may be fine. I mean, if you want to keep cutting in line, use your bullshit reasons. I hope no one punches you out. But basically, if you realize that that's the reason you're cutting in line is not what you're saying. Uh, it's that, you know, you, among other things, you, 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 you got there too late or you, you, you've been procrastinating for filing your taxes. And you know, it goes on and on and on. Uh, and it's not because you got a flat time. My favorite thing is I, I tell the students, uh, if someone comes into my uh, class and she's late and she says, gee, I'm sorry, Professor, I'm late. I got a flat tire on my bicycle. Even if she had a flat tire, that's not the reason she's late. 
You understand that? If, if, if the rule was you you get flunked out of Stanford if you come in late, she would not come in late if she had a flat tire. Believe me, if I had an Uzi machine gun and I blasted people who came in late, they wouldn't come in late. It's a matter of giving it enough valence in your life to, to give it the priority it needs to get it done. And that's the part you don't want to say. You know, you come in late to someone's house for dinner, you know, you, you give them some excuse, but, you, you know, you didn't, you didn't give it enough priority. You didn't get into the shower early enough when you should have. You were too busy finishing something on your last podcast or something like that. So, you know, it's that kind of thing. And I, I, it's just useful to understand it and to do it. It's not a life and death, but it will improve your life and it will let you change stuff. And in your work, it's also true. Uh, often, even in technical things, you think the reason is something. And the big breakthrough is you realize that wasn't the reason for it. And then you realize you, you've kind of walked around an obstacle and, and you, you've got a big insight. So this whole idea of attributing uh, cause and effect to a single thing uh, is really hard when it comes to people. You know, it may work a little bit better with mechanical things, but even there it's sometimes questionable. Bernie, it is such a pleasure to have you. There's so many more questions I could ask you, but we're coming to the end of the podcast. I, I want to share with listeners that that Bernie's book, The Achievement Habit, uh, is filled with this kind of sort of clarity of insight and engaging stories. And um, I'm not going to give you a reason to read it. I'm just going to tell you to go read it. Uh, and and it's uh, and to let you know that it was sort of well worth my time and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Bernie, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.